We started to look at a section of scripture in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has turned his attention from talking about the corrupt teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and addressing those issues and correcting those issues to preaching about the corrupt practice of the scribes and Pharisees. And we are now in a section on prayer. He's actually covered giving in verses 2 through 4. Prayer will be covered in verses 5 through 15 of chapter 6. And then fasting in verses 16 through 18. And all of these subjects, giving, praying, and fasting, had attached to them or had evolved into some very corrupt things. And Jesus is going to correct that. This is one of those sermons. I used to do this. I don't do this anymore. But I used to, if I got to a sermon that I was particularly passionate about, or would get excited about, I would take my suit coat off. And the people in the congregation would know that this is going to be good. If I rolled up the sleeves of my shirt, they knew they were in trouble. I'm taking my suit jacket off now because this is something I'm very passionate about. In these verses, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus is corrupt is correcting the corrupt practice of the pagans. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the pagans do. For our purposes today, you can substitute in their unbelievers. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. And we covered that verse last week. So I'm not going to repeat that. We're going to look at verse 8. Be not ye, therefore, like unto them. And the reason, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. This is an amazing verse. He covers what we shouldn't do in verse 7, and then he tells us why we shouldn't do that in verse 8. Now these words from Jesus echo down through the ages, and they come to us today. This is God speaking to us today. There's a big push for being able to hear the voice of God it's right here in verse 8. From God's inspired word, this is what Jesus says to us today. Don't be like them, them referring to the pagans, the unbelievers, if you would, those who are not part of the kingdom of God. Don't be like them. Don't imitate their practice. Here, the prayers of the pagans. This verse tells us why, 
and underlying this concept of how we should pray is one word, confidence. Confidence in who God is. This is telling us why our prayers should be different from the pagans. Don't make the same error that they make. God does not have to be badgered, worn out with words. Don't become like the pagans. Don't use those vain repetitions. Don't allow yourself to imitate and reproduce this corrupt practice of the heathen. And then he tells us why. And I, I have a number of reasons here. And uh, Brother Stephen, I think I only have three pages here, so but it'll probably still go just as long because I get excited. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father, underline those words, your father, the reason not to be like the pagans is because God is just not some unconcerned deity up in heaven. He's your father. Because your God is the Father. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Children of God. That is a relationship that before Christ was unknown to believers in the Old Testament. That the God of the universe, the creator, the sovereign king of all, through Christ has become your father. I want you in your minds to think about the perfect father. Now, none of our earthly fathers are perfect. But think about the perfect father. Notice it says... Here, be not ye therefore like unto them for your father. That word for is introducing the reason not to produce the corrupt practice of the pagans. You, unlike the pagans, have a different relationship to your God. And that relationship is a father-child relationship. What is the perfect father? Kind of formulate that in your mind, but your father knows you. He knows all about you. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your needs. He knows how you'll react in every single situation. He knows you. He created you. He recreated you by saving your soul. And he knows you. I see that in the verse because it says, For your father knoweth what things you have need of. When? Before you ask him. Before you ask him. 
And so we are not to reproduce the corrupt practice of the pagans because you have a different relationship to the God that you serve, the God that you worship. He knows you. So my first point here is that he is your father. Folks, that is an incredible relationship. Think about a perfect father. What perfect father, now, again, I'm talking perfect father, when a child crawls up on his lap, and my dad used to have a, a uh, piece of furniture right next to his lazy boy chair, and when one of the grandkids crawled up on his lap, they would point to the top drawer. You know what was in the top drawer? Candy. Grandpa, can I have a piece of candy out of that drawer? Of course. Number one, I know you're not going to be staying here for very long. Number two, when the sugar high hits, you'll probably be gone. No. My dad did that because he loved those kids. What perfect father would have a son or daughter crawl up on their lap and not give them what they ask for if it's reasonable? Your incredible relationship with your father in heaven is a loving relationship. God is your father is more ready as a loving heavenly father to answer us than we are to pray and ask. We don't have to appease him. That was already done through Christ, where Christ became our propitiation and satisfied the wrath of God against us. We don't have to try to make our Father in heaven take knowledge of us as though as the pagans thought about their relationship with their God. Remember what Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, cry louder, he's got to be sleeping. He's not paying attention. I remember, this is to my own shame, went through a tough period of time in my life, and still studying theology and things, but I remember praying one time, and these words are almost exact, God, if you have the time to listen to me, I know you're busy over here with John MacArthur. I know you're busy over here with this person. I know you're busy with all the saints of the world. Could you just listen to me for a second? I prayed that. That request is based upon a wrong understanding of who my father is. We have a loving relationship where God is wanting to hear from us. Where we don't have to approach God with a spirit of fear or a spirit of distrust. We don't have to cry aloud and use vain repetition to try to get our Father's attention. We don't have to wear God out with words or wear him down so that he gives us what we want, what he didn't want to give. He's our Father. And as our Father, He knows what's best for us. 
all the time. There is never a time where our Father in heaven will leave us to ourselves and let us flounder. Even in the darkest of night with the darkest clouds in the sky, if we can't sense God's presence, he's still there. We're called beloved. That means loved ones. And because we are beloved, our Father is willing to listen to our needs. Willing to listen to our fears. Willing to listen when we feel like we're going astray. Willing to listen even when we've sinned. He's willing to listen. And so we have an incredible relationship, and that is a loving relationship. But as part of that, our Father, we also, it is also a giving relationship. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Jesus himself says to us, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there of whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, notice this now, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? And I believe that Luke chapter 11 says that God will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. I have to admit to this day, I still don't understand that verse. Because when we're saved, we all get the Holy Spirit. But you know what I like about the mention of the Holy Spirit there? Keep your finger here and go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. God has given you the person of the Holy Spirit I always liked these two verses in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. The day you were saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence within you. He became the seal of your redemption. A seal that proves ownership, protection. But the gift of the Holy Spirit to God's children when it comes to prayer is very special. So I don't know about you, but I've been where verses 26 and 27, what they talk about. See, God has given you something that will help your prayer life. Likewise, the Spirit, 
also helpeth our infirmity. How does he help? This gift that our Father has given to us, how does the Holy Spirit help us? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. You ever been there? You ever been to a place, going through a situation, have needs, facing temptation, whatever it may be, and you just don't know how to pray or what to ask God for? But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. But not only that, he that searcheth the hearts, that's God, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, that's within you. Because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And those times, as part of this giving relationship, God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us when we don't know how to pray. When we don't know what to ask for. I've been on my knees before God going through terrible things, things that a pastor should never have to go through. And not even uttering a word, just groaning. Praying for people and not even knowing how to pray. Seeing people go through things that I probably would never be able to handle and wanting to pray for them and not knowing how to pray. That's then when the Holy Spirit steps up within us and says, God, this is what he means. This is what he wants. And in that giving relationship with our Father, he has given us the Holy Spirit to help us. He hasn't given us a scorpion. He hasn't given us a rock. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And according to Luke 18, as part of that giving relationship, God will avenge us quickly. We read that passage last week. And so we have an incredible relationship, a loving relationship, a giving relationship. Number three, a confidence-producing relationship. There should be, when we pray, a confidence based upon that relationship of God being our Father. Not coming to God saying, Lord, if you have time, could you at least listen to what I have to say? I did pray that. I'm ashamed that I thought so little about God that I would pray something like that. We should have a confidence based on this relationship with our Father in heaven. That whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Confidence when we pray is not based upon those vain repetitions or the content of our prayer. It is based upon obedience and conduct, but it is based upon the character of God, who he is, and the relationship that he has established with us through Christ. 
our Father. And as such, his ear is always open to our cry. The pagans were concerned about being heard, and so they put into their prayers certain content, certain repetition, certain formulas that they thought would guarantee them being heard. Our prayer is not heard because of the content or how much we repeat it or babble or prattle or whatever. It's based upon a relationship that we have with God through Christ. And so we don't imitate the practice of the pagans because God is our Father. Number two, we don't imitate the practice of the pagans because our God is omniscient. Let's put it this way. He's an incredible God. He's an incredible God. What does God know? He knows what we have need of even before we ask it. Ephesians chapter 4 has an incredible verse in it. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 20, Paul writes, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. When I prayed about my sweet corn, I didn't utter a prayer verbally. I kind of said in my mind, Lord, it'd kind of be nice if you'd stand that corn up. I like sweet corn. Each year we're trying to bring sweet corn to the camp. I said, Lord, we won't have sweet corn for the camp. Over the next several days, the sweet corn stood up. I've never seen that before. All I did was think it. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus Throughout all ages, world without end. This is a incredible God that we serve. Incredible because he knows what we have need of. He doesn't have to be informed of our needs. The pagans feared not being heard by their gods. We don't need to fear because God knows what we need even before we ask. Verse 32 of chapter 6 of the book of Matthew. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. He knows. He knows our needs. He knows what we're going through. So the question that people sometimes ask, why pray then? If God knows what we need before we ask, he knows our thoughts, why pray? Well, John Calvin has a lengthy answer to that question. He said this, But if God knows what things we have need of before we ask him, where lies the advantage of prayer? If he is ready of his own free will to assist us, what purpose does it serve to employ our prayers, which interpret 
or interrupt the spontaneous course of his providence. The very design of prayer furnishes an easy answer. Calvin might have call, called it easy. I don't know if it's easy. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him. Let me ask you something. Is there anything in your life, need or problem or situation you're going through that is unknown to your father? You better be shaking your head no because there isn't. He is omniscient. Or of exciting him to do his duty. You ever have to tell a perfect father to do his duty? No. Or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom, in a word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. God himself, on the other hand, has purposed freely, without being asked, to bestow blessings upon us, but he promises that he will grant them to us because of our prayers. We must, therefore, maintain both of these truths, that he freely anticipates our wishes, and yet that we obtain by prayer what we ask, as to the reason why he sometimes delays long to answer us, and sometimes even does not grant our wishes, an opportunity of considering it will afterwards occur. In other words, he'll discuss that at another time. We are not praying to let God know what our needs are. We are praying to show our dependence upon our Father. To acknowledge our need of him and our need in general, to honor him, to obey him, to acknowledge that he does know and he is the one, the only one, who can help us with our needs. To acknowledge that he is the one who gives good gifts to his children. When does God know? Before we ask before we think. Folks, God has known about your need today before he even created the world. He's known about your need from the foundation of the world. This incredible relationship we have with God as our Father is based upon an incredible God who is omniscient, who is omnipresent, who is eternal, who is eminent. You know what the word eminent means? You don't? I didn't either. I had to look it up. God is involved in the world. God is involved in your life. And he's at work in the world. And he's at work in your individual life. He's eminent. He hasn't created things and then taken his hands off and said, fend for yourselves. He hasn't done that. He's eternal. He's eminent. He's loving. He's kind. 
And there's a whole host of other words from the Bible we could use here, but folks, it is an incredible relationship with an incredible God. And so, we need to believe right things about God when we pray. And those right things are revealed in the Word of God. We call it theology. This is why theology, doctrine, systematic theology is so very important. See, the pagans had a wrong view of their gods, small g, and so it led to wrong practice. A wrong premise will always lead to wrong practice. Practice, everyday life, conduct, is based upon what we believe. In all of Paul's letters to the churches, usually the first couple chapters our theology, sound doctrine. And after he teaches sound doctrine, then he goes into sound practice, conduct. You see, underlying this passage is what we believe about the God that we serve. The idolaters, the pagans, the Gentiles, thought that they had to get their God's attention, wake him up, call him back from a journey, and then wear them out with words so that they would turn their attention to what was going on in their lives. And let me just say this, if you haven't gotten it already, your father cares about what's going on in your life. He always cares about what's going on in your life. We don't have to persuade God. And folks, we come to God not based upon who we are. We're not worthy to come to God. We come to God through Jesus Christ, who made us worthy, because it's through salvation through Jesus Christ where we become a child of God. We don't have to persuade God about anything. We don't have to try to appease God. God is not ignorant of our needs, nor inattentive to our prayers. Folks, let me show you. Turn to Hebrews, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 4 first. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. What was the purpose of a priest in the Old Testament? The priest was the go-between. 
the mediator between God and the children of Israel. And so we don't have a priest on earth. Where is our priest? Where is our great high priest? He's passed into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the Son of God. He says, because of that, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. We have a great high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of our Father who knows what we go through because he went through it. There's not a temptation that we face that Jesus didn't suffer going through. Verse 16. Because you have a great high priest seated at the throne of your father, and because he understands you, he was a man, he went through all of what we go through. Because of that, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. And notice it's called the throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. God giving to us what we do not deserve. That we may obtain mercy and find grace. And what's the last part of that? To help in time of need. Now turn to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Verse 19. Why? How? Do we have that boldness? Having therefore, brethren, boldness. And in my mind, I go back to that chapter 4 passage, boldness to come to the throne of grace. But here it talks about it in a little bit different way. Having therefore boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus. To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What's the holiest? Remember the tabernacle that the children of Israel made according to the directions that God gave? There was within that tabernacle what is called the Holy of Holies. That's what the holiest is referring to. One person was allowed into the Holy of Holies one time a year. In fact, historical tradition tells us, of course, the high priest wore um, certain things on the bottom hem of his garment so that as he was moving about in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, the children of Israel can hear him moving about in the Holy of Holies. Historical tradition tells us that the children of Israel, for practical purposes, tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest. The reason for tying that rope around the ankle of the high priest is if they ever heard those bells stop moving, they knew he had been slain by God because he did something wrong, didn't obey the law correctly. And because no one else was allowed into the Holy of Holies, 
they would pull him out by that rope. That's how significant it was to come into the Holy of Holies and to view the presence of God between those two angels over the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that cloud of fire and that pillar of cloud that came up by day and the, the fire by night? It emanated from the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. That was symbolic. Now, folks, God cannot be contained in a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud coming from the Ark of the Covenant or emanating there above between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. But it was symbolic of his presence. What an awesome time it must have been for the high priest to go into that place, having done everything correctly and coming in with blood to view the presence of God in a symbolic fashion. That was the Holy of Holies. One man, once a year, going into the presence of God, as it were. And notice what it says now here in verse 14. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness, holiest, by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. And between the holy place and the holy of holies was a, a, a veil. And at the time that Christ died on the cross on Calvary, that veil in the temple, which was built on the same concept as the tabernacle, that veil in the temple, I'm told, was anywhere from 6 to 12 inches thick, was torn in two from the top to the bottom to show that the way into the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, was now consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me just ask you this question. If God designed such a plan of salvation by sending his own son to suffer, to die, and to be punished in our place on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ on the third day rose from the dead and is seated at the hand of your incredible father. Do you think he's going to deny you access his presence, if he went through all that, all the types, all the symbolism, everything through all of the Old Testament history to the day that Christ died, do you think he's going to say to you, if you're saved, the child of God, no, you can't come? Christ paid the ultimate price of suffering the wrath of God in your place so that you could come into the presence of God. See why I would have taken my jacket off?
God is not unconcerned. God is not unaware of your needs or your problems. He cares. And he provided a way for you to come to his throne and ask. And so prayer should be based on who God is. He cares for us. Now keep this in mind. God is not some divine bellhop. We can come and ask him like he's our servant to do all these things. We come to him with a childlike humility and faith. We should not come to God and ask him that we could win the Illinois lottery, which was worth over a billion dollars. I read some articles. Some people said they wish they'd have never gotten a winning ticket in the lottery. It ruined their lives. You know what? God is not going to give us something that's going to ruin our lives. He knows what we need. He knows what is best for us. He knows. He cares. And our God is not distracted, busy doing other things that he does not have time for you. That's why it's so important to understand that God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is eminent. God is eternal. We don't have to get God's attention. He doesn't love John MacArthur any more than he loves you. If you're saved and a child of God, I think I heard it this way, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's nobody more important in the kingdom of God than somebody else. We have a confidence. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. Lord, thank you that you are so great and you are so good. Help us to base our prayer life on a proper understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stephen.